Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Welcome to the Siren Coffee and Science. I'm Dr. Lucia Rojas-Smith, and I'm the director of the Center for Community Health Evaluation and Economic Research at RTI. Today's conversation continues to explore topics related to assistance. As a reminder, this refers to healthcare sector activities that aim to reduce social risk by providing or linking patients with relevant social services. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Shannon O'Connor, a social science research analyst at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. During today's discussion, Shannon and I will highlight evaluation findings from the first year and a half of the Accountable Health Communities model. Before we get started on the findings of evaluation's first report, Shannon, why don't you give us an overview of the model itself? Thank you, Lucia. I'd be happy to do that. So the model is designed to screen Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries for health-related social needs and then connect them to a community service provider who can address those needs. It's currently being tested in 28 sites across the country, and the eligibility criteria for enrollment in the model is two or more emergency department visits in the past 12 months and at least one health-related social need related to food insecurity, housing instability, transportation problems, utility difficulties, or interpersonal violence. So the model is testing the effects of two types of interventions across health-related social needs on healthcare expenditures and utilization. So the interventions are being tested in two tracks. Beneficiaries in the assistance track are screened for health-related social needs using a universal screening tool, which inquires about their health-related social needs. Then they're randomly assigned to the intervention group where they receive navigation assistance, or they're assigned to the control group where they receive information about resources available in their community. And just to make sure you understand, navigation assistance entails being connected with a navigator who puts them in touch with community resources to help address their HRSNs. The alignment track, on the other hand, combines screening and navigation assistance with stakeholder engagement activities uh, to engage or improve community service capacity, which is key. And this track is not randomized, but all beneficiaries in that track do receive navigation assistance. Before we go into the scope of the report, I should probably talk a little bit about the scope of the evaluation, uh, and then we'll get into the findings afterwards. So with regard to the evaluation, although previous intervention center models indirectly addressed HRSN, the Accountable Health Communities model is the first to systematically test whether identifying and addressing poor health-related social needs of community-dwelling beneficiaries improve healthcare costs, utilization, and outcomes. So the intervention center contracted with RTI International to conduct an evaluation of the HD model and assess the impact of key outcomes and the factors that are contributing to that impact or lack thereof, depending on what we find. With regard to the report, this is the first evaluation report that was released in December 2020. It describes the Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries who were eligible for the HD model and the alignment track through December 2019, including their socio-demographic characteristics, their health-related social needs, participation in navigation, and navigation outcomes. And for both tracks, it also documented fee-for-service Medicare beneficiaries' healthcare expenditures and their utilization patterns before they were screened. The model impacts that we displayed for fee-for-service Medicare beneficiaries who were eligible for navigation in the assistance track are through September 2019 
and they were assessed using Medicare claims through December 2019. So hopefully that gives you a good overview. It's a lot to take in for sure. And there is a lot in that report. Shannon, what for you was the most surprising or notable finding? Well, I would say the evaluation confirmed the model's eligibility criteria identified that the high-cost, high-use beneficiaries in the Medicare fee-for-service population who have the potential to be impacted by the model. Uh, it was the combination of the two or more ED visits or one or more health-related social needs that helped identify this population. And in looking at the population of Medicare beneficiaries in more detail, we found that nearly half are disabled. So this finding, again, confirms that we are targeting those who can benefit most from the model. Yeah, that finding struck me as well, especially given that CMMI really didn't have a priori information about the social needs of the beneficiaries. So, you know, when they created the model, they couldn't have known that that combination of the one HRSN plus the two ED visits would actually really target the most vulnerable who would benefit the most from the model. Lucia, what did you find most surprising? What I feel is the most surprising and useful has been the screening data. It's been an incredibly useful and rich data set. And we have this data for all beneficiaries who come into a clinical setting who are participating in the model. By and large, the data confirmed what we kind of already knew from the literature, which is that the needs are very complex. Really, the majority of the beneficiaries have more than one need. And they tend to cluster around food, transportation, and housing. Like I said, we kind of knew the literature. We knew we suspected that would be the case. But, you know, it was really great to have that confirmation in the screening data. And Lucia, the evaluation also tried to assess health-related social needs in the community. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered? Sure. We used the county health rankings to look at food and housing needs in the communities and the geographic target areas um, in which the model is being executed. And so what we found there was, wasn't really surprising. Of course, we did find a high level of need. What was surprising is that even though the, the measures are not that comparable, um, the county health and the measures of, of housing and food insecurity are not directly comparable, but we did find that there was a higher level of need in the screening data. So I think that just really points to the fact that you really do need this beneficiary level data. Really important to gather information on your beneficiaries at the beneficiary level and not to sort of rely on sort of more aggregate measures of need. And the other thing I'm also I'm just thrilled with these data is because, you know, it really helps us understand the differences between the beneficiaries who receive the navigation and those who don't. And we wouldn't be able to really look at those differences, assess those differences without these screening and navigation data. They also are part of our key measures for implementation effectiveness. So the things that we're looking at are things like the percentage of beneficiaries who are screened and of those, how many are eligible for um, navigation and of those who ultimately accept navigation and then go on to have a need result. So without those data, we would not really be able to evaluate the model. The other thing I would note is that the randomized design of the model was a really great surprise, a very pleasant surprise, because it's often very difficult to control trials of these kinds of interventions, but it's worked out really well for this model. It really did. So the findings in this first report focus a lot on implementation. Did you have some surprising or unexpected findings related to implementation that you'd like to discuss? Sure. I mean, I think it, it wasn't surprising that, you know, screening and navigation would be difficult to do. I think that's pretty well established in the literature and in practice. What we found was interesting was for the range of strategies that the, uh, the organizations who are conducting the model are using to address all the challenges on the ground. What I thought was also really surprising was the success of the screening in the ED departments and emergency departments. 
So, you know, I guess in hindsight, if you think about it, it would make sense that if one of your criteria for enrollment is two ED visits, you are going to have a higher volume of high-risk beneficiaries in the ED setting. And what we found is that in the ED setting, the screeners typically had more time to engage the patient, answer their questions, complete the screener, whereas in a primary mm -hmm. care setting, the more time-limited environment, and so you may not have opportunity to really engage the patient or even complete the screener while they're waiting for um, to be seen. So that was kind of an interesting and surprising finding for me. Yeah, I was going to say there was one other unexpected finding that was the high level of, of acceptance in a navigation. We originally assumed that we would have about a 40% acceptance rate, but in fact, about 75% of those eligible for navigation accepted it. Um, which is really encouraging. However, the higher than expected caseloads created greater burden for navigators. So we didn't expect that, but it was something that we dealt with as the model went on. So Lucia, if you had to say, what would you say is the biggest challenge of the evaluation so far? The screening and the navigation data are kind of, a, you know, there are two edges to that. So on the one hand, it was really, um, really rich, detailed data, but it was also pretty difficult to learn to understand it, and <laughs> to manage it and to um, <laughs> analyze it. And so they're very complex. And, you know, it takes a lot of data to really understand every step of the process from screening, all the way down to navigation, acceptance, resolution, there's just a lot of steps in that process. You know, we, we definitely have a good handle on it now. But it was a steep learning curve at, at the beginning. It's really great to have that data because we have a much more complete picture of what's going on. Another thing I guess that I would say is a challenge is that, you know, there is a certain amount of loss to follow-up that I think we just have to accept with these kinds of interventions because, you know, you're dealing with very vulnerable populations who may be very transient, but maybe difficult to contact them. Getting the, an actual resolution disposition on some of these folks is going to be really hard. We may never know what's happened to some of these folks, but kind of we anticipated that there would be this loss to follow-up. So we included as well in the evaluation this a beneficiary survey that would try to get a little more information about what was happening with beneficiaries once they accepted navigation and, and then you know what actually transpired after that activity and whether they had any success in, in engaging with, with the community service provider and whether they got their need resolved. And then finally, I guess the other big challenge is it's it, it's just something there's not a ton we can do about is that, you know, there is about a two-year lag with the Medicaid data. So that is why we do not have Medicaid data in this first report, but we have plenty of other data to analyze in the meantime. And we will have uh, Medicaid findings in the next report, which is uh, will come out sometime in the spring of 2023. So Shannon, can you talk to us a little bit about how CMS tends to weigh the evidence for model evaluations? Absolutely. So the purpose of the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation is to test innovative payment models and service delivery models to reduce program expenditures while preserving or enhancing the quality of care furnished to individuals under such titles. Um, so CMMI is required to evaluate every model and make evaluation results available to the public in a timely fashion. There are three scenarios for success from the statute. So the first is that quality improves and cost stays neutral. The second is that quality stays neutral and cost is reduced. And the third, which is the best case scenario, is that quality improves and cost is reduced. So if a model meets one of these three criteria and other statutory prerequisites, the statute allows the secretary to expand the duration and the scope of a, of a model into a program. And that's how we define success at the end of each evaluation for a particular model. What are you seeing as some encouraging signs from our preliminary findings out of the evaluation? 
So the most encouraging finding was that we found a significant 9% reduction in emergency department visits, although it is preliminary, so we don't want to get our hopes up too much, but it was very exciting. I do want to mention, though, that this was for a portion of our population, the Medicare fee-for-service portion only, which is only about 30% of our population. And in our next report, we will include Medicaid beneficiaries, see if this pattern holds up. So fingers crossed. So, Lucia, what do you think? What's next for the evaluation and the model? Seems like it's hard to believe that the model is ending soon. It is slated to wrap up April of 2022, but the evaluation will continue to analyze the data beyond that period until we get all the last bit of data from all the folks who were enrolled, screened, and navigated. So the next evaluation report is going to be released in the spring of 2023. And this will have um, findings for all of the beneficiaries, Medicare and Medicaid, as well as we'll be including all of the uh, data for the participants in the uh, alignment track. So, you know, as we said earlier, we were only able to include those in the assistance track in our report. So I want to stop here and see if we want to have any, if we have any questions that have popped up. Yeah, let's do that. It says here that relatively few Medicare beneficiaries are screened for um, social determinants of health. What database did you use to identify the target population? So that for the organizations who are participating in the model, they are required to do universal screening. So anyone who is a Medicare beneficiary is screened um, when they come in for a clinical visit of some sort or they're at in that clinical setting. So I hope I answered that question. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. You want to take the next one? I'll take one. Who does the screening in the ED setting? So essentially what we do is we have folks from our bridge organization and our clinical delivery sites going into the emergency departments and screening folks who come through. So they have a universal screening tool and they go through each of the questions about each of the health-related social needs. And we have a data system on the back end that flags them if they say yes to one of the questions for one of the needs. So those are the folks that do the, the screening. I think I'll take the next one. Were there insights related to what made acceptance rates so robust? I mean, I will say that there was a, a lot of training around, you know, how to engage, you know, that's a good part of what the model participants are, um, you know, the organizations that are doing this. They have a lot of um, support and activities around how do you engage patients. And I mean, certainly some of these folks have been, you know, some of these organizations have been doing this kind of work. You know, but I, honestly, um, we do need to dig into that because we really didn't expect that. We actually expected it to be much lower and we were expecting like, what are the barriers to acceptance? Now, there is a way for people to opt out once they have accepted navigation. So we're looking at that data as well. So, you know, it may be that it's actually maybe a little bit, they said they wanted to do it, but then they didn't. And, or maybe they said they would do it just because they didn't want to decline. <laughs> Um, and then, but ultimately really didn't want the assistance. We're going to definitely dig into that data a little more in the next report. We've got 28 sites that are doing this. And you know, even though the protocol is fairly clear on what needs to happen for screening and navigation, you know, I think, you know, organizations are using different strategies to get navigation targets up. So why is there a two-year lag in oh, Medicaid data? That's that a good question. <laughs> <laughs> There's usually a lag in the data, um, Medicare data in particular, because it takes quite a long time to do claims runout, and then we have uh, we recently transitioned from systems. I don't want to get too into the weeds, um, but we recently went over from Max uh, to TMSYS, uh, which is another data system. And so we've been converting that data and we found that some of the data didn't contain everything that we needed. So we had to supplement with other data sources. So uh, it's, 
<laughs> it's been a wild ride trying to use these data, but certainly it's worth it. Uh, and we will get those data eventually. Lucia, do you want to take the next one? Yeah. Did anyone test in an inpatient setting? Yes, we actually, one of the settings in which you can do the screening is in labor and delivery and mental health. And that also includes like inpatient psychiatric. So I do know some, some bridges are doing screening in those kinds of settings. So yeah, there, there, there can be, it's, you know, it just depends on the, the organizations doing this can select the kinds of clinical settings they want to engage. So um, it's not uniform across the 28. Were there any bridge organizations already participating in advanced practice models? That's what I assume APMs means and any factors associated with readiness for implementation or differences in patient acceptance or effectiveness by type of bridge organization? Well, this report, we, we are planning to look at some of the implementation factors. We actually hadn't looked to see if they were already in advanced practice models, but I think that's a great, you know, it's a great point. And we are looking at whether they had a history of doing this kind of intervention. That was mostly what we were focused on in this first part of this evaluation. So had they ever done social, you know, screening for any kind of social determinants? Had they ever done any kind of navigation or trying to connect patients to social services? So that is something we definitely look at. We are going to do a full qualitative comparative analysis in a future report where we will look at what are the implementation factors that actually drive implementation effectiveness. And so, you know, among the things that we're looking at are context and history and culture. But more on that in the future report. But we didn't get too much into it for this first round. Uh, Lucia, alternative payment models is uh, what stands for APM. So just so everybody is familiar, we're trying not to use too many acronyms. Okay. The 9% fewer ED visits for Medicare fee-for-service seems encouraging what changes in ED visits were seen in other interventions. So I'm not sure if you're talking about other interventions in this model or just generally speaking in other interventions. We've seen some literature that shows, you know, there are some of these interventions have some promising effects. I think what was, you know, what's encouraging about this particular model is that this is the first where we've really kind of empirically tested <laughs> with a randomized control. So I think it's a little bit more robust evidence, um, at least trending that way. Uh, we won't know. I mean, we will be in the next report looking at whether there are differences between the alignment and the assistance track. So we want to know if this, this community engagement piece actually does improve above and beyond just giving people assistance. So that is something we're empirically testing with this model. You know, I think if there are there going to be changes in EV visits with say the alignment track, you know, does this engaging community partners and all these, you know, engaging with different sectors in the community really help achieve better outcomes? Um, I think it's still a, it's a still an unanswered question we're hoping to be able to answer in a future report. And do screeners use empathic inquiry? I don't know, Shannon. Well, um, I'm not super familiar with empathic inquiry, but I will say that we do uh, we do have a lot of data from qualitative interviews about screeners trying to figure out whether or not people are maybe in a situation, particularly um, when we talk about interpersonal violence, if they're in a situation where a potential abuser is maybe in the area or if they've come with them to the doctor's visit or if they are you know, not able to answer the questions. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but we do find that they have used some techniques. They try to take the person away so they can answer in a quiet place or away from anyone they might be with. This is particularly related to the interpersonal violence. There, there is a technique that I've, I've heard that they've used that it's 
it's kind of it's not empathic inquiry it's something else <laughs> i can't remember what it's called <laughs> but, but, they do, but I, you know they do um the bridge organizations have been training people in specific techniques for engaging patients um they use different techniques so like again like a sumamai does not you know determine exactly what you have to do but you have to do something <laughs> yeah yeah we don't prescribe exact interview techniques, but we do ask that they use the universal screening tool. And we do ask that they um, try their best to be um, empathetic and also to be sensitive to that person's health-related social needs. And we find that a lot of the, a lot of what comes from them answering these questions honestly is the screeners and the building rapport with the beneficiaries. So many of them don't want to mention that they have a health-related social need in the beginning of the screening but they, they eventually do build a rapport and we find that that really helps them in being able to, you know, address the, the questions honestly and then being able to be connected to a navigator. And that's a big part because a lot of people are pretty proud and they don't want to necessarily admit that they may need help in one of these areas. Yes, motivational interviewing. It was on the tip of my tongue and I couldn't, I couldn't bring it up. <laughs> so yes, we have qualitative interviews that there, that is among one of the techniques or uh, methods that they use. Um, like I said, it's not across the board because everyone's kind of tailors it to what works for their site. Certainly. We have a qualitative, we have quantitative, we have a mixed method design. So we are definitely um, very focused on the how um, across the board. Um, understand, like you said, like I said, it's, there is a protocol for screening and navigation, but there's a ton of vari variation. There's a lot of heterogeneity in the way that the model's actually being implemented. So we, we definitely ask a lot of how questions. Why is the acceptance rate so high? I mean, it was just higher than expected. Lucia, did you address that question already? I think you did. Yeah, the criteria was very specific. It's people with two ED visits and at least one need. And I think the, that combination of that criteria seems to really pull out the people who really are in most need. Um, so they, it could be that they are just, you know, it's just this subgroup of people who are just more disposed to having assistance, needing assistance. Like we, we it was a surprising thing to us to find that a third of almost, you know, well, more than that, um, a good proportion of the Medicare beneficiaries were actually have a disability. So obviously people who need um, assistance. So it could also be a population difference with other you know, studies differ in terms of who they're targeting. Not all vulnerable populations are the same. So it could be just our subset. We're just able to get more acceptance with this group of folks. Yeah, and I think that was highlighted by the fact that the the rate of health-related social needs was higher than in the community data sets that we looked at. So among screening, we, we found that the rates were higher than in the community area data. So that was interesting. And that may have something to do with why the acceptance rate was so high. All right. I think we're we, that's about all the time we have today. So first off, I want to express my gratitude and thanks to Shannon for her insights and thank all the listeners for joining us today. Also, the next Coffee and Science webinar is on June 4th, and it's going to feature Dr. Lauren Taylor and Kelly Cronin, and they're going to explore questions around the ownership of community resource referral platforms. That is totally one I'm going to call into. That sounds great. Actually, it lines right up with our models. Some of the models are doing, well, the models are doing similar things, so that will be really interesting. So again, thank you to everyone, and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science Series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurélien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produced the podcast and the live event series. 
Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.